everyday injustice. Too many wrongful convictions, corruption has infected the criminal justice system. Leaving too many people helpless, fighting for their lives instead of receiving justice, people suffer. Is that why they say justice is blind? Hello and welcome to the Everyday Injustice Podcast. I'm your host, David Greenwald. For the past 10 years, we've operated Vanguard Court Watches in California, including San Francisco, Sacramento, and Yolo counties. Our goal? Expose everyday court injustices, and now, more broadly, shine a spotlight on injustices in the entire criminal justice system in the form of wrongful convictions, police and prosecutorial misconduct, and mass incarceration. This podcast hopes to take it a step further and highlight criminal justice reform on a national level. Everyday injustice. All right. So, um, so Andy Krivak is a free man. He is indeed. For the first time since 1996. So what... What's the backstory? Well, the backstory is so and so Andy and Anthony were wrongfully convicted of a murder and rape in Putnam County. Uh, and Andy gave a false confession. Anthony did not. Hence, they had separate trials. Um, Anthony's conviction had been overturned the second time by the New York State Court of Appeals on the grounds that. Uh, you know, there had been new evidence about an alternative suspect, the serial uh, rapist named Howard Gombert. So his conviction was overturned and, and for the second time. And at the retrial, he presented the Gombert evidence and he was acquitted. Uh, in the meanwhile, so Anthony had had private counsel that was, um, you know, paid for by his um, then stepfather. Um, Andy had come to the foundation. Uh, looking for assistance because he wasn't similarly situated financially. We screened the case and then we brought some lawyers in to uh, take his case and, you know, challenge the conviction on the same grounds. And uh, ultimately the conviction was overturned and then it was time to bring in a new set of lawyers to handle the, handle the trial. And, you know, uh, Oscar and I go back a long ways. I'll let him uh, share a little bit about that. But he was one of the early names that I thought about, you know, Andy had asked the foundation brings some lawyers to him that would collaborate with us in representing and, you know, that he would decide who we would go with. And he really liked Oscar and, uh, and uh, the prior counsel left that was with him before that. But one of the other lawyers that prior counsel had brought in, uh, Karen Neworth, decided to stay on the team and work collaboratively uh, with Oscar. Maybe the final detail I'll, I'll mention and then I want to want Oscar to chat is what one of the key things that stuck out about this case uh, is that it was a coerced false confession and specifically one that was elicited by former Putnam County Sheriff's investigator, Daniel Stevens, who was one of the villains in my case. Uh, you know, he coerced the false confession out of me. And then just, you know, the Gombert evidence, you know, the serial rapist whose MO was the same uh, in all of his rapes. And that was the same way that the victim was found here. And I'll let Oscar tell the narrative uh, from that point. You know, um, so we, we got on the case a couple of years ago. Um, I was, Andy, I should say, was fortunate enough that Karen Newworth, who had headed strategic litigation at the Innocence Project for about nine years, um, 
you know, co-counseled with me. And, you know, we really just started going through 45,000 pages of discovery, which included all the prior transcripts. And, you know, we had some volunteer help to organize it and put it all together. Um, but we had to look at pretty much every single page and know what was know what was in there. And that that really came to to help us because even though the Putnam County District Attorney's Office tried this case three times and the same lawyer who tried Anthony DePippo in 2016 was at the council table here, you know, we knew that we knew the file better. And you know David as a trial lawyer, preparation, preparation, preparation. That's that's what wins. And just we were able to really come up with themes and, and look at what was not done in the case, which was a bigger story than what was done. And that that was what we presented to the jury was that this was a complete example of tunnel vision from the Putnam County Sheriff's Department. These two lead investigators were working on their first ever homicide investigation. And they just did not know what they were doing. And they just pursued these vulnerable teenagers um, based on a rumor, really, instead of looking at the at the actual evidence. And they could never they could never get off it. You know, they were they had the confirmation bias. You know, like most cases of wrongful conviction, they touch on so many of the same themes. They all share a lot of the same themes, but but. The one that was most prevalent here was police coercion, police tunnel vision, and really just an unwillingness to admit a mistake. I just would like to quickly, I agree with that. I just would like to quickly add um, beyond the polygraphist, you know, then the other um, investigator, the cop who, of course, the false confession out of Andy, you know, he was convicted for, you know, assaulting a prisoner in, in, in handcuffs. Then there was additional misconduct of his that came to light. Uh, the prosecution timeline didn't make sense. There were a pair of witnesses who last saw the victim alive past the date at which the prosecution theory was. All of the witnesses had uh, coerced, excuse me, had uh, recanted and said that they were coerced. The one person who would not come down off of that, uh, Denise Rose, uh, she committed perjury in Anthony DePippo's civil rights trial. She she admitted to that. Her story simply didn't make sense uh, on, on many levels. And then there were uh, a pair of uh, rape victims who testified that they were victimized in the same manner um, that the victim in this case was. And that was the same MO by uh, Howard Gombert. So, you know, there was overwhelming evidence of innocence, and yet they tried. They tried the case. I mean, it was based on the nine-page written confession that they coerced out of Andy and uh, some jewelry that was, you know, obtained after a search under questionable circumstances. How did the case with Andy get so far separated from DePippo's case? Well, that was that that was because well, first of all, from the beginning, just the the severance based on the confession. That's how it got started. But that having been said, this should not have went on. I mean, Anthony was was exonerated after 20 years. You know, Andy did 23 and a half years. So that's three and a half years additional time behind the wall. 
and, and then uh, Oscar, I believe it was two years that he spent on an uh, ankle monitor home confinement. So almost, really, almost three. Almost three. So when Anthony's conviction got overturned, Andy should have also, but instead his post-conviction motion was actually denied. And then when he appealed that, instead of them reversing the conviction, they sent it back down to the lower court for another evidentiary hearing. And so uh, all of that, and then as Oscar was mentioning offline, uh, you know, COVID, the general slowdown, all of that culminated into this case continuing for as long as it did. And then they insisted on retrying it. Yeah, I mean, we gave them every opportunity. You know, the the real sad truth is that they shouldn't they shouldn't have retried Anthony either. The Bob Tendy's predecessor, a guy named Adam Levy, was a district attorney of Putnam County. And when the Gombert evidence came out and Anthony DePippo's conviction was overturned, now his office had tried Anthony DePippo in 2012. But when you saw this evidence of third-party culpability, he did the right thing. He called in the New York State Office of Attorney Generals. Then it was called the Conviction Review Unit. Now it's just the Major Crimes Unit or Major Investigations Unit. Excuse me. So they, they can only be called in at the, at the request of a DA. So Adam said, you know what? I'd like a fresh set of eyes on this. My office has you know, tried this case three times with you know, two people. And let's look at it. And they worked collaboratively with Adam Levy directly, the DA, and one of their investigators, uh, Gail Heatherly from the Office of, the, of uh, the Attorney General as the lead lawyer, and a guy named Mike Leahy. So the four of them reinvestigated the case in 2015. And what happened was there was an election that year and Adam Levy lost the Republican primary to Bob Tendy by 600 votes. And Adam was ready to vacate these convictions. The AG's office just wanted to speak to a couple of more witnesses to tie everything up. They met with Bob Tendy. They told Bob Tendy all of this. They said, look, this case stinks. Your, your principal witness is not credible. We believe there's strong evidence of third-party culpability, and we'd like another couple of months to finish our investigation and make a recommendation. And he threw them out of the office. It's reprehensible. He threw them out of the office, shut the investigation down, and then they were never invited back in. He then brought up Larry Glasser, who was a DA in Manhattan. Um, not a... An ADA in Manhattan, yeah, not of any particular note, but he experienced. And he was hired specifically to retry to Pippo and Krivak. And then he lost to Pippo. And I guess Tendi, in you know, a fit of ego, said, Fine, I'm gonna retry Krivak myself. So we had the sitting DA of Putnam County, along with Mr. Glasser, trying trying this case. Wow. Um, did you guys get a chance to talk to the jury? Spoke to a couple of them, and that was very powerful. Well, first of all, they deliberated less than six hours, Dave, after right. a seven-week, a seven week, 30 witness. We, our, our exhibits went up to quadruple 
Oh, I believe. Wow. Their exhibits went into a uh, hundred, 99 or a hundred. Okay. Seven weeks of testimony and less than five and a half hours. So they about five and a half hours, excuse me. So one juror was kind of chosen as, I guess, the representative. And she said, I'd, we'd like, I'd like to speak to you. And she said, thank you for bringing truth to this courtroom and for hammering truth on a regular basis. She said she couldn't keep track of all of the lies that were told in that courtroom. And that it was so evident that this case should never have been brought. And she wished Andy and his family well. Then uh, we spoke to another, an alternate. So after the verdict, we were in the parking lot, you know, just talking about what's next and plans and kind of celebrating, obviously. And I noticed there was an alternate sitting in the park in her car crying. And so I jumped to the conclusion that she must have disagreed with the verdict. She was in her car for over an hour. And as we were getting ready to pull out, she lowered her window and called me over. And I said, hey, are you okay? And she said, no, I just wanted to explain what was going on. I saw you looking at me. And I said, were you upset by the verdict? She said, oh, no, absolutely not. It's just that after seven weeks, I haven't been able to talk to anybody about what I saw in this courtroom. And I had to call my best friend and just unload this, the, you know, the two crime victims and how, and these horrible police and, you know, um, it was just so much, you know, misery. I I had to talk to somebody about it and I, I couldn't stop crying. And I said to her, well, look, you, know, you should feel comfort by the fact that, you know, Andy's, Andy's innocent. The jury got this right. And she goes, oh, of course. She said, there's no doubt in my mind. That was part of it, that we were watching this frame, you know, happening in front of us by the DA. She said it was just, it was so much to bear. She was a young woman, you know, in her 20s, and her first time on a jury. And she said, I just couldn't, I couldn't drive home. I had so much emotion that I had to just tell somebody what I just witnessed for seven weeks. I mean, you know, it, it really, it really was a, a true travesty of, of justice. And um, they really ought to be ashamed of themselves for bringing this case. But doesn't that like just reassure you that, hey, you know, we got this right because these people that, um, you know, came into this not knowing this guy from Adam and, and, and they basically saw it your way. Especially so quickly. Yeah. You know, and obviously, you know, you, you sneak a peek, you know, while evidence is going in. And we knew that there were four or five people who visually, you could just tell, were with us. And, you know, you still never know what could happen. But, it, you know, there were times where the DA's actions caused many of these jurors to literally gasp and turn their back to, to the DA, physically turn their back to the DA because of, like, how reprehensible some of his questions on cross were and some of his arguments and the boorish nature of the way he handled some very vulnerable witnesses in a mocking way, you know. And again, they didn't, you know, they didn't seem to have a plan or a theme because 
you know, we picked this jury and selected these jurors knowing that they would align with our witnesses and the way they thought. They would, you know, we had a lot of teachers on this jury, which is not always a group that I would put on a criminal defense jury. But a lot of our witnesses were teachers. And if they weren't teachers, they were high school high school students. And I knew that teachers would be protective of these vulnerable kids. They would understand what it would be like. And, you know, one of our main witnesses was a teacher. And, you know, they, they barely touched her. Um, so, you know, the jury, it was a complete vindication. Dave. You're 100% right. Um, that they they went home knowing they did the right thing. This is not a jury that is sitting there saying, oh, gee, I wonder. You know, this jury was very comfortable and did it in short order for that reason. Uh, David, I'd just like to bring up a, a, a point that I think is worth uh, mentioning here. I'm going to throw a question to uh, my, my colleague Oscar on this. You know, um, you know, it could happen to you worked on discovery reform in New York uh, with our coalition and bringing even more people and forming an even bigger co coalition, um, the Repeal the Blindfold Coalition we became known as, uh, specifically to improve discovery law here in New York, taking New York from one of the worst uh, states in terms of discovery rules to now one of the best. And that policy change played a specific impact in this case. And I'd yeah. like to ask my friend and colleague to elaborate on that, its application in this particular case and the difference that it made. It was it was instrumental. Two changes in the law. And you know, this is where you know reform reform works. You know, Black Lives Matter, that that um, those protests bringing the attention of police brutality um, and mistreatment of people, you know, exposing that created mindsets that we saw in a Putnam County jury that it, when we were picking that we would not have even five, six years ago, a very heavily law enforcement, very heavily red county. And people were like, yeah, I, you know, I see what police can do. I'm open to the possibility where we would not have gotten that, those kind of responses. But also the reform of not just the Discovery Act statute, but uh, 50A, Civil Rights Law 50A, which was a police shield law that would that kept personnel records away from the hands of defense attorneys. Those two statute changes were vital here. We've been arguing for years and years that the Putnam County DA did not turn over all the records that they had. And one of the things that we kept asking for was personnel records. For the lead investigator, a guy named Pat Castaldo, they sent over one negative memo that was in his file and 51 letters of commendation. And they said, that's his personnel. That's all that's discoverable in the personnel file. We kept pushing and pushing for three personnel files. The judge got very upset when it became evident, I won't get into the weeds, that they had not really searched as well as they should have. The judge ordered the sheriff's department to turn over the three files directly in camera to him and that he would look through them. And as far as the lead investigator was concerned, he found eight additional negative memorandum of misconduct, malfeasance, negligence, 
uh, a very, very serious road raiding incident where he literally terrorized uh, a couple because they wouldn't get out of the left lane when he had his little, you know, bubble light on. And the judge was like, how did these not get turned over? And, you know, the, the uh, Glasser argued, the DA, ADA argued that he didn't think it was discoverable because of X, Y, and Z. He tried to explain. And the judge said, the new statute is not, you're not supposed to be the gatekeeper anymore. You're supposed to turn this all over. And the judge did two things. He then read directly himself the memos to the jury and said, these are memorandum negative to lead investigator Pat Castaldo that the defense had requested that were not turned over, that should have been turned over under the new discovery statute. And I'm going to read them to you and you can consider them as to the credibility of investigator Castaldo. And he went through that. It was powerful. But then when we found a subsequent discovery violation in the middle of the trial, even more serious, not turning over a statement from a, an investigator on the day our client was arrested back in 1995 on a different charge, on a drug charge, um, the judge had had it. Um, we moved to dismiss the indictment. The the court said, I, I hear you. I won't dismiss the indictment, but I will preclude them from having rebuttal. And so they had two rebuttal witnesses that were directly related to these statements that had not been turned over. And they had three document witnesses that were going to just put in, you know, government records to impeach one of our witnesses um, in a very slight way, but still. And the judge said, that's the penalty. We're summing up. You're done. And I, I couldn't believe it because, you know, this is the first case I had tried under the new statute. And what, what Jeff points out is important because under the previous statute, we would not have gotten it. We would not have been automatically entitled to them. And it would have been a battle royale to try to even get them. Then they would have been reviewed in camera. It would have been a, such a lengthy process. And here, it's just a demand. And, you know, the judge who was a career DA. So it's not, you know, uh, um, you know, former legal aid lawyer who's on the bench. All this guy ever did before coming on the bench was being a prosecutor. And he was, he was clearly very upset by the discovery violations. And that's the, that's the power of legal reform to make it a more balanced playing field. All right. Um, so any other thoughts before I let you guys go? Oh, I, well, I just wanted to, you know, just, you know, working together with Oscar, you know, Andre Brown, and you interviewed before now, you know, and, and Andrew Krivak, we have three other, we have three, we have a, four other cases together, two of them may be popping out later this year, God willing, it's such a pleasure, you know, we're working with him and, 
you know, look, I wasn't technically one of Andy's lawyers because of a conflict because of the polygraphist crossover into my case, and I can't sit at the table and yet have my case mentioned. But you know, it was great consulting and helping in so many different aspects. You know, uh, of this. Um, yeah, it's just gratifying. It's just gratifying to help someone else regain the freedom. And as Oscar alluded to, I do, I do want to give verbal credit to the LA Innocence Project. Uh, they came out from California. Karen Neworth uh, recruited them to fly out to New York specifically for the purpose of, you know, assisting Karen and uh, uh, Neworth. So they were very much a part uh, of the support team to them too. I, I was in the mix, you know, large extent that I could. Uh, short of the lawyering. So it was a team effort. It was many elements that worked together to cause this injustice to happen uh, from cops and prosecutors and terrible judges yeah. along the way. And it was a lot of us working together too in different capacities and roles uh, in ending in this wonderful result. Once again, uh, Jeff raises a good point. So we we were, the only word for it, David, is, is blessed. We were blessed to have three lawyers, the, the executive director of the, of the LA Innocence Project, uh, Paula Mitchell, and two of her associate attorneys, Hillary Mormon and Eliza Haney. Um, all three of them brilliant attorneys, um, believers in, in the cause, but belief is not enough. You have to have the skill, uh, highly skilled lawyers. They moved to Carmel for these seven weeks. They rented a house in Dutchess County and they were there every day in court um, helping us, you know, from legal research to crafting arguments to uh, wrangling. You know, we had 15, 16 defense witnesses, wrangling witnesses and just providing a sounding board, you know, five brains, you know, thinking about how to attack a witness. Um, we really could not have gotten through a seven-week trial um, without them. It was it was so incredible and heartwarming to have that that support, and it also brings to mind that, and this is this is why it's so hard to balance the the power of the state. You know, luckily Jeff's able to do what he what he does. You know, my firm was able to support me being away from my practice for seven weeks. You know, our families. Everybody um, that when they say it takes a village, you know, it, it took two villages, one in New York and one in L.A. Um, to get this to get this done. And, you know, I would just for, for any lawyers or paralegals or anyone listening to this to really consider volunteering for the Deskovic Foundation, the L.A. Innocence Project, depending on which coast you're on and devote some time. To you know, the vanguard. Some there's things that you could do. People, I'm sure all of us know. People constantly say, "Oh, I would love to get involved." What you know, what can I do? And you know, if you can't cut a check to support these organizations financially, volunteer some time. You know, one of the one of the people who really helped us, um, Danielle. Um, she's not a lawyer. She's not a paralegal. She organized the 45,000 pages of discovery. For us, she categorized them by witness. Danielle Leaf, by by category, by witness, by area, and so this way, when we were prepping for the crosses, you could 
search by name, you could search by category. And just something like that, just being an organized person, saved us countless, countless hours. So, you know, the call goes out there. You know, if you're interested in this subject matter, if you know that these injustices occur, get involved. Donate 10 hours to, to a trial that's going on. And you, you don't, you'd be surprised what a difference you can make by doing some of that work. All right. Very good. Congratulations. And thanks for uh, coming today. Sure. Thanks for always what you do. We very much appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Listen, man, the coverage that you give, you know, what the Vanguard does is essential. You know, it's wonderful to make teaching moments out of these injustices once they happen. So that has its role. We always appreciate that. The critical thing higher than that, the higher calling is covering the injustices while they're still afoot and the vanguard has never been shy about doing that and so it's always extra special for oscar and i when we can come on and be interviewed by you knowing that you cover these injustices ahead of time where it's so crucial Absolutely. all right thanks a lot